0: about isolation and the danger of of isolation. So today's sermon is Isolation, the Fast Track to Destruction. It's the Fast Track to Destruction. And I have to admit, um, personally, I am often shocked um, and maybe a little disappointed in the amount of information that is out there regarding people who are okay with just cutting folks off Leaving people alone. Um, I think there's this obsessive nature that people have, this obsessive need to be away from people. And I don't know what has happened to us over the course of time and history, but you notice there is this incessant need to be apart, to be retreated, to be independent of everybody around you. And I think we live now in a world where there's been this cultural turn where it simply isn't cool or trendy or whatever the case may be to admit that you need and want to be a part of a community. Somehow the need for other people has now become weakness. And so everybody wants to brag about the fact that they don't need anybody or that they can be to themselves or that all their needs are met without anybody else. Myers-Briggs, which is the company that actually does personality tests, recently stated they believe that 56% of the world's population identifies as introverts. They identify with introversion. But I do think that when we listen at those numbers, you say, okay, 56% isn't that bad. But what you have to address is that the majority of people probably would say they prefer to be alone than with others. And I know that isn't literally what introversion always means, but I do think that we are seeing this trend in society where we seem to see that people's preference is to be alone. It is to be without other people. And why is this? We've got to wrestle with what has caused this to happen, what makes people not want community, not want other people. And what I believe has happened to us is that many of us have moved from this collection of people who strengthen us to being strengthened by our own selves and motivations, vying for our own little corner in our own little island. And I believe some of it is what we expect from ourselves If we have learned nothing over the last few weeks, we have learned that we simply do not hold ourselves as accountable as we should. We don't know our motivations the way we think we do. We don't know our hearts the way that we think we do. And more than anything, we have learned that we are prone to deceive ourselves more than anything else.
1: And I believe
0: that there is the key to why people have moved towards introversion and isolation. They will say, well, if I'm by myself, nobody can disappoint me. If I keep to myself, then I'm not going to disappoint myself. But the other side of that is that you also don't have to worry about meeting somebody else's standards or expectations if you don't have anybody around you. And so today we're looking at Proverbs 18. We're looking at verses one through four. And hopefully we'll be able to work through why isolation eventually leads us to destruction. So go with me, if you will, in the word Proverbs 18, We're looking at the first four verses. And if you remember not too long ago, I preached a sermon called the danger of independence. And so this is very similar to that, although this is looking also at some of our motivations and some of the damage that happens when we isolate. Proverbs 18 and 1, it says, Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. When wickedness comes, contempt comes also. And with dishonor comes disgrace. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. Let's pray. Lord, as we prepare... To really hear the word, to really parse and work through the word, God, um, all of us know in some ways things would be easier if there weren't people around us. We know some things would be harder, but we also know that, yeah, we probably wouldn't be as frustrated, as disappointed, as hurt, um, as accountable and so, God, um, as we jump into the word, we all have times where we prefer isolation. But help us see that that is more than physically where we are. That is also mentally, spiritually and emotionally where we are. So help us understand why a permanent state of isolation is not helpful and is very dangerous as we work through the text today. It's in Jesus name we pray. Amen. So listen, um, not everybody in the world is what we call people, people. And we know that, right? There are people who are overtly charismatic. There are people who are talkative, who are loquacious, people who can easily work a room. And there are people who are just less inclined to do any of that. There are people who are not comfortable speaking up or speaking in front of people or working large groups of people. That is completely understandable. And we're not saying if you're not an extrovert, then you are isolated. That's not what we're talking about today. When we are talking today, we're not talking about personality types, but we're talking about flaws in our thinking and flaws in our character. The fact is that you can absolutely be an extroverted person You can have a big personality. You can know how to work a room. You you can know how to network. You can know how to make all the connections and still very well be an introvert and not a part of a healthy community. You can do all those things publicly, but privately still be very isolated and detached from those people. Likewise, you can be a person who prefers to be quiet, who doesn't work a room, who may not network well, who may not know how to speak up, and you can be more connected to a community than even an extrovert can be. We're not talking about personality types. We're talking about personality personality flaws, character issues that many of us may not realize we're wrestling with. What makes a person isolated is not their participation necessarily in community, but it is in how they value people outside of themselves. You can be a part of a community and may not be the most talkative person. Maybe people don't feel as connected to you, but you can still very much value being a part of that community. Just like you can get in a room and be very talkative, engaging, and still not value the people. And I think the way to help you understand this is, look, you know, teenagers, I think it's very similar with them. Either you know it from being a teenager or you know it from having teenagers. And you know how everybody can make up this family You can live in the same house. You can maybe even watch TV together, eat dinner together, and yet, even though that person is a part of this family, they live in the house, they can engage and communicate, they're still isolated. They're in their room to themselves, and when you do have what we call forced family fun, they can physically be there, but their mind is removed. Their heart is not engaged. Y'all, this is what isolation is. That teenager is a part of the family by nature, but they don't value the family. And so while they are there physically, nothing much else is present. And that is because parents to a teenager don't have much to offer in the way of wisdom or trends or culture or music. And so, they isolate themselves from them. Now, the proverb goes even further here. He says that when the person who isolates themselves from others does so, they do it because they have their own desires. It's something they want to do. And as angry or uncomfortable as this point may make us, we've got to accept that this is the truth. When people withdraw themselves from others, even if it is under the guise of prayer or deep meditation, what you will often learn is that it is so that they can get away with what they want to do without any conviction and without any consequence. And I really believe that this is the moving trend of our world. And maybe it is that we have been moving this way all along. I don't need nobody. And I definitely don't need nobody telling me right from wrong. But Paul says this isn't new. In 1 Timothy 3 and 1, he says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of themselves. They will be lovers of money. They will be proud. They will be arrogant. They will be abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And the worst thing of it all, having the appearance of godliness For denying his power. Y'all, I've said this before, but let me say it again to be clear. The last days have been the last days since Jesus' ascension. So when Paul is writing about know that this will happen in the last days, he wasn't just talking about what was going to happen for us now, he was talking about also what was happening to them then. That's what I mean. This ain't a new thing, this ain't a new problem. He said that they will be first before lovers of anything else. Men and women, children alike, will love themselves first. And they'll love pleasure. And they'll be arrogant. And they'll be conceited. And they'll be puffed up. They'll be abusive. They'll love pleasure. This is what draws us away from not just the presence of God, but also from the presence of people who see us and who know us. And since that that time, Paul writes that the obsession of man is with themselves. And this is the common struggle, y'all. This is what sin is. We all have the same struggle. Sin is me being bent in towards myself. That's what sin is. And what I honestly think it is, is that we believe that that sin, that isolation, that bending in towards ourselves, instead of realizing how dangerous that is, we think that's a safe place. And so when I need to grow, I isolate myself. Or when I'm angry, I retreat into myself or when I am already wrestling with loneliness and depression then I wallow in my own mind and my own feelings. And there are some things that we've got to reason with. In the Bible whenever we see Satan's most clear and obvious attacks on people It is not when they are around a crowd of encouraging believers. It is not them having good fellowship with other members of the body and then Satan comes in. It is almost consistently once they have isolated themselves from other people. You don't even get out of the first book of the Bible without it. The first two humans. It is not until Eve is a part from God, apart from her husband, that Satan the serpent comes and he challenges her. Did you really hear the word the way you thought you heard it? Do you really know God the way you think you know God? Does he really mean for you what you think he means for you? <clears throat> and in that moment, because she has nobody else to turn to but herself, she sins. Not just with them, though. We also see this when Jesus goes into the wilderness, having been fasting, having been in deep prayer, because it's necessary. There are times when you absolutely have to do that, when you do have to separate yourself in order to really meet God and for God to really meet you. But what we also learn, is that while Jesus is fasting, while Jesus is praying, while he's away, Satan comes again. And he questions him with the Word of God. And Jesus knows the Word. But not just that he gets tempted, it is also what happens after he passes the temptation. What does the scripture say? It says the angels came and they ministered to him. He was in isolation. He was praying. He was fasting. The devil tempts him while doing that. But once he comes out of it, he doesn't remain in isolation. The best community surrounds him and comforts him. And this is because what we've got to learn Isolation means that we are as vulnerable as we possibly can be. That's what it means. And I want you to think about this. Y'all know it, but let, really think about it. We are not created to be alone. We're not. We are created for community. Created for our needs to be met and satisfied by those people that God has placed around us. And that's one of the first things that you see and you learn about babies. From the moment of her birth, babies are on this search for light. They are on this search for faces. Because for nine months, They've been in darkness, but they haven't been isolated. And so, most of our children didn't actually want to come out of the womb. They seemed like they were enjoying it in the womb. But once they come out of the womb, the first thing that they want to do is, where are the people that we heard? Where's that voice of my mother? Where's the warmth of her? Where's that man's voice that I heard? And they've learned that babies, scientists have learned, as I just read about, they're hardwired to find that. You say, that's not true. But in the same way that those sea turtles that are hatched in the sand are hardwired to go right back to the sea, it's the same way that from the moment that we are born, we seek out community. With our mother, with our father, with if there are siblings, they seek that out. They want companionship. And even as that child grows less physically dependent on their mother and father, they grow and get their own rooms. And at night and in the dark, they realize that being by themselves is scary. I really, you know, wanted to do this test, especially with Elliot, because I was like, in my mind, in my mind, um, if you don't tell a child that the dark is scary, then they won't be scared of the dark. Made perfect sense to me. So I did everything in my power not to tell him the dark is scary. And then they reach an age where they become a little bit more aware of things, a little bit more socially aware, and you realize I didn't have to tell the child anything. There is still something hardwired in them once they reach a certain level of consciousness, not just to fear darkness, but to fear isolation and darkness. Let me tell you how I know that. <coughs> because I, I was convinced that my children were afraid of the dark. And so this is what I did. Chris can testify to this. There is enough room and space between our room and their rooms. Because I'm like, if they're afraid of the dark like they claim to be, then I got a plan. If they ever got a plot, I got a plan. They're not going to come in this room every night. I have that house. I'm not playing. That house is as dark as physically possible it can be. Like you, it is advanced darkness. You can't get that house darker. And the reason I know is because I'll be walking around stumbling and bumbling into everything trying to figure out where I'm going because I'm trying to keep them out. Because my head says, all right, y'all coming in our room because y'all are afraid of the dark. Well, you're going to have to walk through the dark to get to our room. So I'm going to one-up you. And I've realized over time it has not thwarted them one bit I'm also convinced that children have night vision built in because all the stuff I'm running into, they walk around it like they can see it. And I'm like, how is it that y'all are so afraid of the dark, but are willing to walk through, I mean, pitch black to get to us? And when you get to us, our room is dark because they're not afraid of the dark. They're afraid of being without us in the dark. Because if you're willing to walk through the darkness to get to us and be in the darkness with us, it's not the darkness you're afraid of. It's that I know things can happen in the dark that are a danger to me if I'm by myself. So let me go be with some people who even if I got to be in the dark, at least I'm not in the dark by myself. Y'all, I realize that that very same thing that our children are born to desire and want, if we don't cultivate that, the same thing that they hate becomes the thing they love. All of the darkness all of the isolation that they once feared becomes a safe space for them to do and participate in all the hidden sins that they can do and participate in. And it's what do you do when you're no longer afraid of the shadows on the wall? See, that's not just about them. That's also about us. Many of us, when we first got saved, when we first came to Christ, nobody could stop you from being a part of community because you just got pulled out of the world and you know the dangers and you know the realities and you know yourself so well. And you're afraid, not just of the dark, but being in that darkness by yourself and you got to tell them, go home, leave the church. And you realize new Christians who want to have community here, don't want to go home. They don't want to go be alone. They don't want to be by themselves because they know what is freedom for sinners is a prison for those of us who are trying to practice righteousness. But just like that child that eventually moves away from fearing the darkness, just like that child that moves into thriving in the darkness, Many times we as believers, as we grow up in our walk, think, I don't need them people as much as I did. Or some things start to work for us that didn't work before. Or we develop a few friendships or relationships, and the community that guarded us, guided us, and and, and protected us becomes the biggest hindrance to us doing what we want to do. And that's why it says the person who isolates himself breaks out against all sound judgment. Because you think that everything that you do is right. That's the struggle. You want to be told that you are always right. You want to believe that you're always right. And if anybody is really in community with you, they'll never do that. And so either I will surround myself with people who will only tell me what I want to hear, or I realize I'm, I'm not famous enough for that, so I just withdraw. And the only person who will always tell me what I want to hear is me. It's me. Whoever isolates himself breaks out against all sound judgment. And this is the trajectory. When we prefer the darkness rather than the light, it is because we are doing our best work to conceal our sins. And that's the trajectory many of us are on when you sequester yourself, even if you think that it is for some kind of spiritual growth, y'all, that can quickly become a dangerous space of personal rebellion. And according to this text, thinking that these things will make somebody wise, they quickly can become a fool who only understands what they say and what they think is right. He says they only get pleasure in expressing their opinion. Romans 1 says, thinking themselves to be wise, they became fools. And their foolish hearts were darkened. And I don't believe that's most of us. But I do believe we know folks just like that. And we are trying desperately to tell them the truth, to give them the truth, to let them see, and you realize it's like they can't see the truth. But maybe now you see why they can't. It's two ways I believe that we become fools. One, we surround ourselves with fools, plural, Or we, too, only listen to one fool. And the worst part about being a fool is having no one to tell you that you the fool. That's the worst place to be in. I believe that all of us in some kind of way can identify with what it feels like to think that isolation is the best result. If you have ever been hurt, if you have been disappointed, if you've ever been abused by friends, people who say they're believers, it is so easy to think that the safe response is to retreat. But I want to give you this advice and I hope that it is as helpful to you as it is to me and has been. I say this as I I close. (coughs) I remember when I first bought my first motorcycle, those of you who remember that journey, I had, when I bought it, for people who don't know, I had actually never ridden on a motorcycle at all. And that's just, that's a little bit, if you want to know a little bit into my mind, I do probably think I can do whatever I want to do. So I bought a motorcycle because I knew it would be cheaper on gas, because I was going back and forth, that I had never even sat on one. Didn't tell nobody I was going to buy it. Just popped up one day with a motorcycle at the house. And I, and I actually knew so little about it that I had to call my uncle, who did ride motorcycles, and he had to drive it home, because I couldn't do nothing with it. And I was convinced that I could learn how to drive it even though I knew it would be hard. I knew it would be hard to learn how to ride a motorcycle. But I figured, look, my mother used to drive manual transmissions. Like, I know how to drive a motorcycle. And I remember one of the first times I tried to ride it, I was struggling with the clutch. Because anybody knows, yeah, if you ain't never really shifted no gears before, it ain't something you just learned. And so, I mean, it's stalling, it's jerking, I'm about falling like, It's terrible, it's a mess. And it kept stalling so bad that our driveway downstairs actually had a hill to it. And I didn't know enough about the motorcycle to get it up a hill. Because I'm thinking, it makes sense to me, oh, I'm going up a hill, you need to put it in the highest possible gear. Which, you know, now, now I know better, you know. And so I cannot get it up the driveway. I can't even, at this point, get it back on the concrete. So I embarrassingly enough, pulled it off into the grass and I just left it in the grass, in the yard next to the driveway. And I completely withdrew from that motorcycle for days. Now I was disappointed on one part because having a motorcycle, which I've learned, was harder than not having it. When I didn't have it, I didn't have the struggles of having it. So in a lot of ways, yeah, it brought me benefit, but it was easier not to have it. I wasn't struggling. I wasn't embarrassed. I wasn't confused. Now, I needed some of the benefits. I needed to save on gas, and it had other benefits. But it also meant that I had to accept that having this it's going to come with difficulty. Some of it was because motorcycles are complex. They're not easy to just get on and ride. You got to know how to work it and learn it. That was one part. So yeah, some of it is that they're complex. But the other part was that I had not learned how to function it, nor had I learned how to function with it. And I wanted to learn to function with it, but I also knew it would be easier for me just to leave it alone. And so, after some days, I went back to it. And I got back on it, and I put some more time in. I swallowed my pride, and I did what I needed to do. And so I say all that to say, To be away from it for a time was healthy. It was helpful. It gave me some perspective. But to have spent any more time away would have convinced me I'm fine without it. When it comes to Christianity and when it comes to our faith, no, you're not fine without us. You are not fine without community. Yeah, I know, because I'm one of the members of your community. I know sometimes it would probably be easier without me. I know sometimes it would probably be easier without a lot of stuff. It would be easier to not have a lot of things. But that doesn't mean because things are easier that they're better. Being in relationship with people, being in community with people, people are complex. And yeah, it'll be easier for you to function without it, but it would be also better and more helpful if you learn to function with it. When we think about all the things that occur and can happen in life, At times, it may feel easier, y'all, for us just to withdraw and isolate. And I'm not saying that we don't all need those times. But it is never better for it to stay that way. Remember, we are saved by faith in Christ alone. But we do not have a faith that should remain alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the word. God, we are so grateful that you have placed us a part of community, that you have given us accountability partners to hold us up, to strengthen us and encourage us, but to also challenge us, to also correct, to also bring conviction. And so, Lord, my prayer is in those times, in those days, in those moments where community is hard, but also in those times, in those days, in those moments when we are hard to deal with. God, let us not think that isolation is the right path. Let us not believe that there is safety or sanctity or sanctification apart from the other members of the body. God, as we've learned over the last few weeks and we'll continue to learn in multiple counselors, godly people there, there is the safety. And so God, even when we feel <coughs> sin or hurt or wrong or pain or grief or injustice, and we just want to do what we want to do, God, surround us with wisdom Surround us with community, and let us not isolate ourselves, thinking that we're becoming wise. We become fools. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.